Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 12-12-2021. And we're continuing with our worship service where we left off with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, thought of the week. All of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our different nature and follow the desires and thoughts like the rest. We become nature's objects of wrath. The verse says that we all all share the same experience when it comes to spiritual death. This should level the playing field and help us understand the context in which we find ourselves. We all are very different, but in many ways, we are also very much alike. When we are like because we share the foundation of spiritual death, with this different nature ruling over us as a result of Adam's original sin, from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The the simple nature expresses that itself, each of of us is, is different, differently as we use our free will. As unbelievers, we make decisions according to our falling nature. The nature dictates to us what is are possible, and we are simply and we are simply choose. Just the nature is simple. We can never make decisions for righteousness, as it is written. There is no one right, not even one. Think of Romans three chapter verse ten. Because we are spiritually dead at birth, we are simply cannot understand God. Or his way. There is no one who understands, think of Romans chapter 3, verse 11. This situation allows the different nature to be exploited through a many different personalities. What is on display here is not necessarily the free will of man, but the soul depravity of different natures expressed through many different personalities. And just hearing what was brought before about the way of sin is death, I just want to look at this verse in Romans chapter 6. It speaks about the bad news. It's Romans 6, I'm talking Romans six twenty, where we're slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time of the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slave of God, the benefit you reap leads to eternal holiness and results is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just to emphasize, most people get that verse, the way your sin is mixed up. It's not personal sin that this verse referring to. It's the fact that referring to Adam and we all at that time um, result in spiritual death so for the wages of the spirit is not because that we're sinful well we are at that point before we believe in Christ but it's from Adam it's called spiritual death so now we have a choice to either believe in Christ and get us removed from this or accept it to say that total condemnation for the wages of sin is death, but it's not our, it's not our, 
sinful nature. I mean, it's our sinful nature, but it's not personal sin. It's Adam's original sin that at the moment that we are born, we are spiritually dead. So this whole part of the week is referred to Romans about the fact of the matter is where we were. We were at that one point gratifying the nature of our sinful nature. But now since we are free from this by believing in Christ, God has set us free from this and give us eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this all we have our prayer given to us by the white. Thank you very much, Dave. And thank you for that commentary as well. Uh, before I can, uh, proceed with the prayer, are there any special requests? I know we, we all have somebody on our mind list. Keep that on our minds and in our hearts. Um, but um, if you want to uh, state your prayer explicitly, you can do so now. All right. Um, well, let, let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to fellowship together, um, to love one another, and to receive what uh, Christ has to teach us and what the Holy Spirit has to teach us, his job being to guide us into all truth. Let us, let us consider that he is the source of our transformation, and let us make ourselves available to God fully, attentively, and in our presence uh, so that we may uh, honor him and what he has to do for us but also that we may mature in our spiritual growth. And I pray for all of Word of Truth Christian Church um, and those on the call as well as those who are affiliated with the church, people we know, our families and extended families. Um, pray for all of those as well. I pray for the church and the uh, church worldwide and the whole body of Christ all over the world, um, that they too would be able to make progress uh, against the momentum of the world which throw them in the opposite direction. And uh, among those, I pray for persecuted Christians. And uh, I pray also for our own ambassadorship. Uh, I pray for boldness mixed with a sense of urgency especially in the face of disaster that can kill so many so quickly. And even our own days are numbered, and we don't know what that number is. So let us take advantage of the time that we have on this battlefield to serve you, Lord, knowing that our victory is already secure. And Father Abba, I, I pray for a couple of people in particular, Katie and John. Um, you know their, their needs and what is on my heart in that regard. I pray for all unbelievers who want to know you, but are stuck in the world's teachings. They're depending on works or emotions. They're both to think that that gives them a relationship with you. Father, convict them with, through the Holy Spirit that they do not believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And let their hearts be open to receiving the simplicity of the bad news and the grandeur grand simplicity of the good news 
that Christ has done all the work on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> and uh, we are going to move into John chapter 17. This is where we are. Uh, I'm going to pick up to where we left off. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And that is the last verse, verse 4, that we are on. And we're going to get to that one. Um, but in your notes, Christianity is built on the Father's eternal purpose, the successes of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the revelation and equipping of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The work of Christ stands for all time as the only reason anyone in the world has been saved or ever will be saved. On top of that, what it meant to the Father's plan cannot fully be measured from our view at present. We can know that the life of Christ has brought the Father glory on this earth. And this continues throughout eternity. We should take time to see this from Jesus' perspective. So the first, we only broke this down into two phrases. It's a short verse, but it is there is a lot to consider. So we're going to break it down. I have brought you glory on earth. So we'll get right to it. Our Lord is speaking about a certain future as though it had already it was already accomplished throughout this chapter. And that's something to note. We know he still has to go through the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension before all of these things can come to pass. Uh, he knows about all of that because we just came out of John 16 where he related those things to the disciples specifically. And so it's not like it's escaping him that, or he's forgetting that he has to do this. He is speaking from a futuristic standpoint of what not only can happen, but in his mind, what will happen. It's a certain future. So that helps us understand his mindset as he's going to the cross, doesn't it? Yeah. So point B, this helps us understand Jesus's mindset in the Garden of Gethsemane. So even though you read those scriptures and it sounds like Jesus is equivocating a little bit. Well, Father, uh, if it's possible, can this cup pass from me? Uh, if, well, not as I will, but as you will. We can read that and we can ask, oh yeah, he was struggling all right. He was struggling with, should he do it or should he drink the cup or not? That's not really the case at all. Jesus resolved to do the will of the Father. The, the question would be, is it difficult? Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult for Jesus to fulfill the mission that he uh, set out and did accomplish. So this it helps us understand the mindset. For him to speak in this way, 
says that he fully knows and is fully committed to uh, the fact that he's going to fulfill the Father's plan, which is to go to the cross and to fulfill all righteousness, to pay for all the sins, all of the things we discussed about his work. And we'll talk about some of the things in, in the next phrase about what work specifically he's talking about. So 18.4 is, when we read, I'm going to read 18.4 since I'm already in 17, I, I'm right here. It says, Jesus, knowing all was going to all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "Who is it that you want?" So he, he's aware. This is not something where he's thinking, "Well, I don't know what's going to happen." He, he's aware of what's going to happen to him. He knew it, so it wasn't a surprise to Jesus when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of that was. Part of. I'm glad it was written because we wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Thank you, Spirit of Truth. So point B, this helps us understand. Oh, that was point B. Point C, how did Jesus bring glory to the Father? So that's the question about this verse, right, where he says, I have brought you glory on earth. My question is, how did he do it? And point C, and it's very simple because it's in the next phrase. I couldn't you can read the whole scripture and then get the answer to that very simple question by finishing the work you gave me to do. So he brought glory to the Father by finishing the work you gave me to do. Is what he, his own words. If you were to ask Jesus this question, he would answer in this way, I would imagine. How did you bring Jesus' glory on the, to, uh, to, to the Father? How did that happen? And he would tell you exactly what we just read. So point D, this glory is realized by Jesus executing the plan of the Father for the Son. And we can get that from, there's a few verses to consider. Now, we really need to talk about this glory because uh, hopefully in your mind, we, you know, you understand where Jesus is coming from when he uses glory in this way, because it's used quite often in this chapter. So we need to take a look. We will take a look at glory. But we just, at this point, focused on how it is, how does this glory come to pass? How is it realized? And so we're going to look at John 5, 36, a couple verses. Most of these verses are Jesus, his own testimony about it. So 5, 36 says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So there you have it. The works that the Father has given me to finish. So notice, he is very aware. This is not some new thought. This, this was early on in Jesus' ministry. He knew why he was already, he knew why he was here. He understood his purpose and the mission that was before him. And he says, well, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing the very thing I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. And just by me showing up, doing what I'm doing now, this is confirmation that the Father has sent me. And then the famous verse that we refer to in John 14, 31, it says, but 
But he comes, and we know who he is, the prince of this world. He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So whatever we might understand in Jesus, we could look at the Gospels, see him healing people, see him serving on the Mount, see all the different things that he's doing. We might walk away saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus did this and Jesus did that. But really, we should understand that the Father's plan for Jesus was very specific. The only way Jesus could bring glory to the Father is by executing the plan, by doing that which the Father destined for him to do or planned for him to do. We could say it that way. And then there's, um, I think, verse 5. No, oh, well, let me see, uh, 15, here it is, this is John chapter 15, 7 through 11, let's look at that, 15, 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now notice he says, this is to my Father's glory. So this is, this is to my Father's glory that we remain in Christ. And this is not a salvation passage. We already know that. No one can be saved by bearing fruit. That's not what salvation is all about. That's works. So this is how we live. <clears throat> Our lives on the earth can bring glory to the Father as well. So this is, this is verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So this is um, just another indication or scripture that we can read to understand how this glory uh, is being brought to the Father. It is because if we go to John 15, we know that the Father is the gardener. He's the one who planted the garden in the beginning. He's the one that oversees uh, the fruit and, and all of that in the garden. And if it is acceptable, it is to his Father's glory. Now, how can the fruit come? Well, the fruit comes through us abiding in Christ, and that's how fruit can be born on our branch. So point E. So here, here's the point. I have brought you glory, and this is on earth. Note that the glory is achieved on earth. So this is, is one thing to say uh, the glory, we expect glory, but is another thing to say that the glory has happened. Now, without Christ coming to this earth, it would not have happened. But to note, it happens on earth, but it was planned before time began. Now, there's a couple of scriptures with this thought in mind. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Let's look at that. And I know you've seen it before, but let's look at it again. There's some points here to make. 2, 7 says, no, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began. What a profound verse. But this verse doesn't just say that we existed before time began and that we are a part of the mystery and all of that. It says that there's a certain wisdom that existed before time began and it was a mystery and it was related to us. This is what Paul says, we declare God's wisdom. And so now this wisdom that Paul is declaring, literally the, the doctrines and understanding about God that we know about in this age was a mystery. It was not revealed in the Old Testament, but it's been hidden uh, and that God destined for our glory before time began. Notice, our glory. How can we get glory from this? We're going to see later. But not only is the Father glorified, but Christ receives glory as a result of the, him executing this plan. But the glory is ours, really? And then that's interesting. So we're, we're gonna, we declare God's wisdom a mystery. So now when we say God's wisdom, it's not just talking about, oh, the fact that he, all of this was hidden and all of that, but it's talking about the Father's eternal purpose. That's all the details around that, knowing that because of what the Father planned, all of these things come to pass, and that's why we're standing here talking about it today. So it's all the detail about the, the, the intents and thoughts of God's heart from eternity past. And we're, this also extends to the other men, members of the Trinity because they planned this so that as we're seeing it being executed through the person of Christ and God the Holy Spirit, we're seeing it come to pass. But what we're seeing come to pass has been planned way before time began. Notice that word here, it says, God destined for our glory. Now, we didn't exist before time began. But God knew we would exist. He knew right where we are. This talks about God's omniscience with reference to time. He knows everything there is to know, every thought, every motive, every action of every person in the world or ever will be in the world. He has always known this before time began. And he's already crafted a plan so that all of what we are seeing now, God already saw before he executed the plan. And then if we go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, here is the thought. Uh, this is three and four. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's where we exist, in Christ. Well, how do we get in there? Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, before the creation of the world. Wow. Before the creation of the world. Now, that has to be the creation of the universe because in the beginning, God created the heavens, says Genesis 1, and earth. All of that was happened at once. So before creation, then he chose us. He made a specific choice to choose you. And it sounds kind of odd that we would say that. 
or that the apostle would say that about us, because it stretches our imagination way back to say that we were in the mind of God before the creation of all things. That's astounding. I mean, I guess we could say God knew everybody who he gave life to that would exist on planet Earth. He knows every single person, either he gave them life already or that is yet to come. But he knows every single person he gives life to. And we are not just every single person. We are very special because he chose us to be in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, so back to our notes, just, just noting that this is important for us to know when Christ is telling us, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. This is not something that he learned or that happened when Christ got on, on the ground. He says, okay, now that you're on the ground, let me give you your orders. These orders go back to eternity past. And Christ knows this. He understands this. And verse 5 clearly brings that out. And we'll talk about verse 5 as we go forward. This is John 17, 5. So on earth again, more, more about on earth in point F. Note also the glory spoken of here is only achieved by the word. These three things happen. These three or four things have happened. How did it happen? The word becoming flesh, John 1, 14. The word is God. We know that from John 1, 1 and 2. Uh, he's God and flesh, verse 14, as we said. And the God son or the God man, we could say, verse 18, where it clearly delineates who Christ is in terms of this new title that he has as son, this unique person who has not only come from eternity uh, and is God, who created all things, but this person became a man. He now has two natures. He is God and he is man. So we know this, and those verses point this out very clearly to us, and now speak of the Son, who is able to speak and understand from both perspectives. He can tell you what would have what will happen from eternity past. As he's a man, right? just think about it. So this is amazing to think about. So, so all of this, and then see also, as I say, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Let's read that. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he def God can't die. But the person of Christ, 
who became a human being was able to die. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He, then he breathed out his last and he died. So these are just confirmations about who Jesus is. All in the same chapter here in John 1, he was God, he became man, then he understood himself as this unique son of God, where he understood all this wisdom and, and walked around with this identity that astounded the Jews, made them think, what do you, who do you think you are? You're committing blasphemy. You know, they didn't understand who God was, who Jesus was. So let's continue with this thought. Uh, point G, brought you glory. So, so when we think about this glory, I have brought you glory on earth. So this is point G, brought you glory. This phrase should be understood in the light of the next verse, verse 5. So let's look at this next verse, John 17, 5. I, I know we're not there yet, but we will be very soon. But these verses should be understood together because they both reference things that I think are related. So here, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, in other words, it's in the same breath. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So now, this brings... Uh, that time period that we were discussing before the world began, before creation, before time, it brings that into focus again. And now we're seeing something where the Father existed and the Son existed and there was some glory to be seen from their union, at least from the work that the Father had given Jesus to do. Obviously what happened in verse five about the glory happened because of verse 4, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Right, so he is rehearsing, just get this, he is rehearsing the plan that he knew before time began. I finished the work. Right? Well, you didn't finish the work yet. I, I brought you glory. Not yet, you still got things to do. But he's rehearsing the plan that he knows of how it should go from eternity past. Does that make sense? I hope so. So when we, I say he's speaking futuristically. I talk about he's speaking of a certain future uh, that he knows will come to pass. There are ways to say it because the only reason why he can speak of it in this way is because from when they decreed that these things would happen then that is when they started happening. It was just a matter of time before they would happen. He knows that this is how it's going to go. Now, does he force it to go this way? Well, he has something to do with it because he is saying that this is what the Father is going to do. He's going to execute his plan in the earth. That's why creation happened in the first place. So he says, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work. Well, that's what the original plan was that Christ will bring glory to the Father. Now, we got, we got to talk about this a little bit more because in, in context here in, in the point G, 
I said we need a fresh look at glory. We've been talking around it. I know we have covered it in verses past, but we just need to understand something about glory here. And we need to stop and think, because I know when people think about glory, they just think about flashing light emanating from this being, and there's just everything is filled with the light of the being, and, and it's, there's this glory that surrounds the throne, and this is, these are all images of glory that we can relate to because we've heard them before. Or if we think about Israel, how the glory manifested in terms of lightning and thunder and peals of, uh, of thunder just, just echoing out into the whole uh, land. And the children of Israel trembling at, his, at the sight of all the manifestation of God. And God appeared to them as a burning fire and, and a burning furnace and all of that. And what we know about Moses, right? He appeared to Moses as the burning bush, a bush that was not consumed. But let me just say, one of these things about uh, glory is, uh, I'm making a general statement here. As I look at all the things I've read about glory, is that glory is... A manifestation. Glory is a reference to, just like what we're seeing here in this chapter, how it's defined, it has to do with a plan. And we could say, God has glory. But if, if it's just before time began, that means it's just the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, did God have these manifestations before time began? I would have to say no, he didn't. What was the glory for then? The glory is for us. It's sort of like God is presenting himself to us and he's presenting his plan in ways that we can understand. So, so the glory, I know people want to say, wow, God is manifested in this way, but that's all to creatures, whether they be angels, whether they be man, God has to have some sort of manifestation because God is invisible. You can't see God. You can't perceive him in this way, just unless, like it says, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is John chapter four. So God, the only way you can perceive God and, and to respond to God is through the spirit of truth. He's a spirit. So the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is able to reveal God to us. But not from our emotions, not from all these different things that we might think, but it is through the very personal, and this is in this age, the very heart of God, his purpose, his eternal purpose, the spirit of truth is able to take that and reveal it to us. So this is when, I, when we read glory throughout the rest of this chapter, why wouldn't we take this view of glory on down through the context? Why would we not do that? Because we know that this type of glory that we have in John 17, 4 and 5 is not some emanation of 
some beaming light that just comes out. But what we see it as spoken of here is the completion of a plan. Now, it has to do with the satisfaction of God. So the father planned this, the son executes it, and both of them, the father and the son, receive glory as a result of this plan. So so it's just like what we read in Philippians 2, where it says um, Christ, even though he was God, he did all this, he, and he became a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to his death, even death on the cross. And then it says, God highly exalted him. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that was above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Then it says at the end of that, to the glory of God the Father. See, so the, that was finishing the work that Jesus was meant to do from the plan that happened before time began. So Jesus came, he stepped into that role. He says, okay, I'm a son, I'm a man, I'm gonna execute it, I'm gonna execute it to the letter, to the T, just like I should, because I'm, I saw this already. I already know exactly what I'm supposed to do here. And he does it exactly. According to and what does the father say? <laughs> this is my son. In him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I chose him. He's the one. So Christ said, well, finishing the work you gave me to do. And what does that result in? Glory. Glory is the result of a plan executed. Glory is the result of Christ doing the will of the Father. Simply put. I asked you earlier in point C, how did Jesus bring glory to the Father? And if I said, if I were to ask Jesus that, what would he say? And he answers it in the very next phrase, by finishing the work you gave me to do. That brings glory to the Father. Now, I am not saying there is no other such way glory can be used or, or that, that those manifestations of glory, but just think, those manifestations are for us. They're not necessarily for God. Like the Father is like, like I'm glory, I have glory and emanating from me, so Father and the Son are sitting back, wow, that is glorious. Or that vice versa, or the Father looks at the glory of the Son and says, yeah, this is, that's glorious. No, because it is related to a plan. And as far as we know, if we can go back as far as we can with God, as far as we possibly can, we go back to that time period that we're talking about where he planned it and then we see the execution of it by the creation of all things that's as far as we can go back we can't go back we can talk about well god is eternal i'm not saying he's not we can talk about all that but we can only go back to a point in time or we can't even call it time a point before time began when god is planning when we say God, we remember the members of the Trinity are planning how they're going to execute this plan that is attributed to the Father. How are they going to do it? That's what we know. Now, so if we say, well, God is eternal. So that means billions and billions of years before, we don't even know what time is. Trillions or whatever years. And, and we, we can't even talk in years because that's all time. Because God didn't acknowledge existing time. But we say he, we just say eternity passed. We, can, we can't even imagine what God did 
in eternity past. It's not given to us. It's just not revealed to us what he did before he began to plan. Because that's all, we, we zoom in right at that point in eternity where he was focused on creation of mankind or bringing many sons into glory. That was his, his eternal purpose. So when I say we need a fresh look at glory, we need to understand that glory is relative to the Father's eternal purpose. That was and we have that from the next verse in five as well, where he says, Father, okay, and now, how about the glory that we have before the creation, right? What, what type of glory is that? So he, even though, we didn't get to five yet, but even though he's talking about a glory, the glory is relative to the plan that Christ executes in time. It brought the Father glory. We're going to see that it brings Christ glory too. We'll get to that later. But for sure, these verses are related. And for sure, it should color the way we view glory in this chapter. In Jesus' mind, this is how it is. We have to, we have to take the perspective of him. Remember, God is invisible. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is able to manifest himself in the person of Jesus, who is God and man, this person. Through this person, God can reveal his true character. God can tell us who he is through the person of Christ. And not only through the person of Christ, as we're going to see but through us as well, who are in Christ. We'll get to that. But before we do, we need a fresh look at glory. We need to stop and think about what is this glory that we have here, mentioned here? What is it? This is, is it just, that, as I said before, it's not some picture of God on the throne and just glory. I mean, that's revelation. All of that is given to tell us something about God. Not necessarily when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to see. We think that we're going to see it, but God is in every part of revelation that is given to us, it is to communicate something to us. We're not to take the, the visions and, and say that there's going to be a beast that has seven heads and ten horns. I don't know what that looks like. Or if you go to Daniel, there was a beast. He looked like a leopard. Or he, was, he also looked like a bear. He looked like a lion, a head like a lion, and he had a this. What is that? What is he trying to tell us from all of that? I'm not saying we do away with the, the metaphors, but what we do is we understand them to communicate something to us. And same thing with glory. God doesn't need to demonstrate as the father son and the holy spirit they're all god they're equally god what, what do they need to prove to one another this is not about that it is about bringing many sons into glory into glory <laughs> shall i say it again into glory but it all has to do with this plan christ as we're going to see, is a very integral part of the plan. Without Christ, none of this is certain. So, so, so we're going to keep reading here as we are in our, 
point G, he brought glory. And as I said, the phrase should be understood in the light of the verse 5. We, we went to verse 5, we sort of understood why it should be viewed in that light. And we are taking a fresh look at glory. It won't be the last, because glory comes up many more times here. So point H, glory is directly related to completing the Father's plan. In completing the plan, work must be done. And it must be done according to the plan. Just as Christ's sacrifice must accomplish propitiation for it to be effective. So it has to accomplish the work. So that's why Christ was so exacting when he talked about completing the Father's plan. I'm doing exactly what the Father requires of me. I'm functioning. To, in fact, I'm doing Right now, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. In one verse, we said in John 5, 36. I'm doing what the Father has called me to do. And then he later says, I'm going I'm to do exactly this. I'm come, I have come to do the will of my Father. He understood. He had a mission. He knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't happenstance by him just, well, let's, why don't we go over here? Why don't we go over there? He knew exactly what was happening. Each step he took, and he was aware of what his mission was on the earth. So, let's keep going. So, he says, I brought you glory on earth. Notice, by finish, how did he do it? By finishing the work. Point two, by finishing the work you gave me to do. So the first thought is finishing the work. Christ's mindset is set in stone. He can't, he, he won't deviate from it as we spoke about. He didn't finish it yet. But in Luke 13, 31 and 32, let's read it. Luke 13, 31 through 32 says, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. So in any, I read 33, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And then he starts with Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. So Jesus is very clear and he's not afraid of Herod or anything that will happen. He understands his steps are ordered and he knows exactly what he's got to do. He's, and he says what he's going to do. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what he's going to do the next day. And he knows what's going to happen after that. It's planned. So it's not like, wow, well, tomorrow I don't. I wake up, I don't know. I hope that things go a certain way. I don't know if they're going to go a certain way. That's not how we function. But, but that was how Christ functioned because he, he knew the plan. He knew what his steps, why his steps were ordered and what they were accomplishing. So that's the mindset was set in stone. He did not have any ambivalence about whether or not he would do the work. He was clear. So point B, Jesus said, it is finished. 
And this is after he, uh, just before he died, that's what he said. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. We should say what the work is. We should talk about it. Why don't we do that? Um, in point C, what is the work? Uh, let's, four important things to determine or understand the work. Let's, let's deal with them. He came to take rulership of this world from Satan. Well, that's clear. Right? That's John 18, 33 to 37. Let's look at that quickly. John 18, 33 to 37 says, Then Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is that you have done? What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So think about that for a second. Jesus knows that he is to assume the authority for this world, the rulership over this. He knows that. But is it now? No, no, that's later. He understands what time it is. So he knows it's not time for him to rule the world yet. Why? Because he's still got to get to the place where many sons are called out into glory. And that's an extended period of time. Well, for now, we know it's been 2,000 years that, he, that the Father is calling those many sons in Christ. That's, so Christ didn't say, yeah, I'm going to rule as soon as I die and go and am resurrected. I'm going to rule the world. He didn't say that. He said, it's not right now. It's later. It's, it's, it's coming, though. I'm a ruler. I am a king. So just listen to Pilate. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered. You, may, you, you, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So this truth is, is not just any truth, like is the sky blue and the person says, yes, true, that's true. That's not the kind of truth we're talking about. We're talking about the truth that God has in his heart about all things. It's a special truth, and Jesus is talking about it. If you know what the truth is, it means the spirit of truth has revealed that to you. And, and yet, the pilot certainly, so what does he say in verse 38? What is truth? In other words, you, you don't know what truth is. And you Jews, you're all running around talking about truth, but you don't know what truth is. This is Pilate retorting to Jesus' response about truth. Back to our notes here. So that's, he came to take rulership. And we know Revelation 21 through 3, it talks about the, um, of when it happens. And we're, we can actually talk about that from right here, Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon and that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and had bound him for a thousand years. 
he threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So notice, who is this? Satan. And just in case you're not sure who that is, the devil, the serpent, right? <laughs> just so you get the full picture of who we're talking about, this one who is the, who has rulership over the world will be thrown into the abyss. There's a, an angel that's going to grab him and throw him into the abyss. Well, he won't be able to deceive people until a short time in the end. But to note, that is partly what happens. Christ came to establish rulership. And if we go to Colossians, which we don't have in our notes, where it says he defeated Satan, triumphing over him and the fallen angels by means of the cross. He defeated Satan. That's why he wrenched the uh, kingdom. Remember, Satan was saying, I'll give you all this. He showed him the opulence, the riches, the wealth of the world. And he says, I'll give, give it all to you if you just bow down and worship me. And Christ says, don't worry, I'm going to take the rulership of the world. I don't, you, don't, I don't, you don't have to give it to me. I'm taking it. That's what happened. Point number two is the what is the work? He came to be judged for the sins of all time. This is things, these are points that we can clearly save some time on because we know these points. John 1, 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is such an appropriate thing. I should say, flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, John, but my Father in heaven. I could say that just like Jesus said that, because it's true. It's the truth of the matter. It's according to the Father's plan that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who is the sin bearer for the whole world, the Lamb of God. And then in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, we've read this before, but it bears repeating at this point in our study. Isaiah 53, here it is. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. This is the Father, the Lord. It was his will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, and though the Lord makes his life, the Lord, is the Father, makes his life an offering for sin. There, there you have the picture that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, so what does it say in this verse? He, he makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, 10 has a lot to say. And verse 11, and he, after he suffered, he will see the light of life. He'll be resurrected. He will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. There it is. I mean, this whole chapter, we could have picked another one. By his stripes we are healed, and you know, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our there's a lot that we can say from that Isaiah. Just read it sometime. And then first John two two it says 
and he is the propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ came to pay for the sins of the world, and he did it. It worked. The fact that he was resurrected says that the Father approved of the work of the Son. Point number three, he came to bring righteousness to the human race where Adam failed. Now, you think about Adam and that now we, all of us are born with the characteristics of Adam, not just his failure in terms of his sin, that we now have a, a, a rebellious nature like he did, but that we, all of the characteristics of our human nature, are, they come from Adam. But what also, the fact that we now have a fallen nature in terms of the sin nature, it also affects our righteousness. We can't, uh, we can't perform righteousness because of Adam's sin nature producing unrighteousness. It doesn't only produce sins, it produces unrighteousness. So if we read 1 Corinthians 15, 22, there we see where it says, In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, and th but then I'm going to turn to the Romans 5, 18 and 19 passage, which also speaks to this point. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. So also, notice, the righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. What righteous act is that? Verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Right? This is the result of what happened with Adam. So also, through the obedience of the one man. That's the righteousness that Christ had when he was here, that he had to be obedient to the Father in every respect. That produced righteousness, obedience. The many will be made righteous. Now, we don't have to be obedient to be made righteous. Christ, his obedience makes us righteous. That's what is imputed to our account. It is not our obedience, it's his obedience. So obedience is important, but not ours. Christ's obedience is what makes us righteous. He took our sins and we receive his righteousness for on our to our account. So that's two. So back to our notes. What is the work? One, we saw his rulership. Two, he was going to be judged for sins. Three, he came to bring righteousness to the human race where Adam failed, right? And then four, here it is, he came to establish and build the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Christ says, on this rock, I will build my church. And so he, he literally, this was part of the instruction that he came to do. So that's why I said that we're not saying, oh, well, Israel rejected me. So then you know what we're going to do? We're going to come up with plan B. No, this is plan A. God knew Israel would reject. And this was part of their reaction he parlayed that into uh, the church, right? What, what Christ was going to do. So in, um, in John 17, which is our context, we see this one played out here. Let's just read it. John 17, 6 through 9. 
This is work that Christ needed to do. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So Christ had that on his plate to do. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And he goes on, but he's, it was on his plate to do this, which was all of this establishes the church. Why? So the apostles or these disciples became the apostles who are the foundation of the church. That's who, what Christ was, was like he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he does begin to build it by introducing the mystery to, um, to those disciples and, and our discourse is John 13 all the way to John 17, where we are, was this discourse that talked about these unique things when the Spirit comes, when it would happen. So those four things Christ came to do and did. And when he said it is finished, he did those things. And through the resurrection, ascension, and session, he was able to send uh, the Spirit, uh, Christ, the Father sent the Spirit in the name of Christ, and that's why we have what we call the Church Age, so that it, now there is this baptism of Spirit and a whole repertoire of more doctrines that we have to know about. So, point D, we're going to finish it. The work you gave me to do. Apparently, the work here is given by the Father to Jesus. But when? We already said it. It happened before time began. What does John 4.34 add to us? Yeah, let's look at John 4 and 34. He says, this is with regard to the woman at the well, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That Jesus knew that that was what he had to do when he talks about finishing the work. And then John 17.5, when did it happen? Well, that worked was planned before time began. Just like the wisdom was before time began. It's like we were chosen before cre the creation of the world. So hopefully we understand that. Point E, Jesus was mission-oriented when he was here. So the question is, what about us? You know, there's a lot to cover in this thought. And I don't think we're going to have time to finish it because I wanted to cover some points. And that will happen next week. I know you said, well, it's just two points, but there's a lot here that I want to talk about. And I don't think we have the time to develop it. That's okay. We run out of time this week, but we, God willing, will have more time next week. So we will continue with this thought. And we will try to capture the perspective of Jesus as we go plowing forward in these verses. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're pleased and overjoyed to know this information about ourselves, about our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and fulfilled the plan. We're grateful for this as we think about our lives and the implications about who we are 
in Christ. Uh, we need all of these verses, and we thank you for providing every detail of the plan to us. So we thank you for those who are on the call, those who are part of Word is Truth, who understand our mission and what we are trying to accomplish while we're here. Thank you for uh, this church and, we, and all of those who are out uh, extended in the world, who are part of listening and growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior through this ministry. We're asking that you watch over them. Give us opportunities in this world, not only to present Christ as the only hope, but to also talk about the way of life that you have destined us to in this church. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 <laughs>